thanks to Milton and Pete for that interview and to Brennan, thank you for agreeing to be interviewed and sharing with all of us. I, I, I even learned some new things and I spent quite a bit of time on Skype and phone calls and email and Facebook messaging and all that sort of stuff with Brennan while he was there. One of the things Brennan mentioned was that it wasn't what he expected. In fact, a lot of things weren't what he expected. There's a saying in Buddhism, it says, to desire is to invite misery. There's something really true about that. I'm sorry, uh, I, I, I don't quote that as I do scripture, but I do think other traditions have wisdom to share with us as well. And this misery that we come to out of defeated expectation or expectation that we have that isn't, isn't legitimate somehow, isn't, isn't framed by a reality, causes us to suffer. One of the expectations that I run into pastorally is the expectation that somehow we're going to live forever, here and now. That somehow our lives, because we're Adventist and are part of the culture of longevity, that we should never be struck with disadvantage or disease. That because as a people we're the most faithfully generous to tithes as a, a corporation of any of the Protestant or Catholic Christian groups in the world, we ought to somehow never be subject to financial hardship or misfortune. That because we have education and value it, that somehow it should be free to us or something convenient to us. We have a lot of expectations about how our lives ought to go and how they ought to be lived. I, like my son, he comes by it honestly. He says he's, he's gotten so much more patient in Africa, and he has. And he confessed that he's just still a tad impatient. And I'm going to confess the same thing. He gets it from me. I'm still a tad impatient. I had, I had my year of student mission service, and I've been in the crucible a, a bit longer, and God is still working with me. And I find myself upset sometimes because somebody feels the need to come to a complete stop before making a right-hand turn without getting over to the edge of the road first. Any of you ever feel a little disturbed by that? Yeah. I find myself impatient because I only allowed 35 minutes to get to my appointment here at the church from Glendale, and it takes 35 minutes, and whoops, there's some construction traffic, and now I'm going 14 miles an hour instead of 74 miles an hour, and I find myself just a little bit impatient. Life didn't, and I'm using trivial, trivial examples, I know. Life didn't go for me the way I thought it ought to in that moment, and I find myself having a change of attitude. What about the bigger things? Pastor, I've been a vegetarian my whole life. How on earth did I get cancer? I don't know. I don't know how that happened. Environmental? Something triggered in the genetic code? Bad luck? It's not God hating on you, I can promise you that. But how do we know with all the negatives that we experience, and we all have sad things in our lives, difficult things in our lives, hardships in our lives, in some way each of us will at some point suffer. 
How do we know that God is really working through that? How do we know that he's able to keep his word and he's able to bring us through that to something? How do we, how do we hold on to that, that truth, that faith? Well, I, we've heard part of it in a story today. Part of it is changing our expectations and realizing that maybe while we're very important, while God loved us enough to die for us, while we're unique in the universe, while our thumbprints are like no others, while we're very special to people around us, maybe as Brennan just said, am I, am I really so important that I can't wait or that something shouldn't go the way that I planned for it to go or wanted it to go? Maybe that's part of it. But our scripture today, all three scriptures that were read, touch on this subject in one way or the other, each with a different perspective. Psalm 22, which was our call to worship, shares with us this fact. God does not despise or abandon those who suffer. Why don't you turn with me to Psalm 20, I mean, yeah, Psalm 22, and let's check that reference for ourselves. Together, let's look at that. And reassure ourselves that that is indeed what God has said. It's in verse 24. 22 and 23 have to do with praising him and honoring him and revering him. And doesn't that go to what I was just saying? We praise, we honor, we revere, and yet out of all of that we still have our sufferings? 24, for he has not despised, that is to say, hated, thought of maliciously. He has not despised or scorned or rejected the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So the first thing Psalm tells us is that God does not hate us. He doesn't scorn us. He doesn't despise us. This isn't about his malice or his anger or his capriciousness. He hears our cries. He hears our prayers. He sees our suffering. He sees those moments when life hasn't gone for us the way we had hoped, the way we had wanted when our finances, our health, our families aren't the way we thought they ought to be. He has not hidden his face from him. God hasn't just vanished. He hasn't just disappeared, decided not to show up. He hasn't played the role of the coward in silence. It says instead, he has listened to his cry for help. So now we say, okay, at least we're heard. I want to ask you, does that make a difference for you? Think carefully. Does being heard make a difference for you? It's not a rhetorical question. I want to hear. Absolutely. Enter an argument. Sit in a court of law. Listen to a mediation hearing. Listen to two groups talking about two different perspectives. Sit around a table at a committee meeting sometime. 
what you will find is that temperatures rise and tempers rise and atomacy increases and volume increases and body language becomes more aggressive when people don't believe that they've been heard. When they don't believe that anyone is listening to their core concern and understanding it. This is why we pay therapists $145 an hour. We pay therapists $145 an hour because we no longer have time for friends. And we don't have anybody who will listen to us, who will see us for who we are, who will hear our pain or hear our suffering or hear our problems. This is why Christian community is called to be what it is and to be different. Not that you won't still need help sometimes and that that $145 an hour won't be an incredibly good investment sometimes. I'm a firm believer. But what I'm telling you is we love to be heard. We need to be heard. The first step in healing is being heard. You can go to a doctor and if his mannerism is rude, you're in and out of the, the room, and he's in and out of the room in four minutes, or she is, and she asks a few cursory questions and only looks at the chart and types a few things on the computer and says, uh-huh, 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 and then leaves, chances are very good you're going to find another doctor. Very good. Even in the days of HMOs, you're not going to put up with that. You're going to say, wait, wait a minute, I have questions. Wait a minute. You're going to want to say something more. As opposed to the doctor who asks a few questions and listens and clarifies. Now, that second doctor may not even be as good as the first one, may not be able to do anything more for you than the first one, or may be able to do a lot more. I can't say. But I can tell you, you're going to go to the doctor who's listened, yes? who has taken time to hear your suffering, hear your pain, and help you identify as accurately as possible the problem. Being heard matters. Being understood matters. In these moments when you feel alone in the universe, when you're depressed, as Brennan mentioned, he felt he was toward the end here in, in Malawi, nobody to listen to his concerns. Isolation. When you feel these things, Psalm 22, 24 makes it clear. He hears us in our suffering. So you have been heard and you are not alone and God is with you in this and now you say, okay, that helps. But if God can do everything, why isn't it he entering that suffering in the kind of way I want him to. Yes? That's what we say. You don't frame it that way. But what we want is to be healed in the way that we want to be healed. Yes? Oh, please. Thank you. I'm going to try one more time. We want to be healed in the way we want to be healed, not necessarily in the way that we're going to be healed. Yes? Yes. It's very difficult for us as human beings to see and trust that God is doing anything in some of these cases. I can't tell you, as a, as a pastor, I, our elders can probably vouch for this, I have seen healings. I've seen some amazing things happen, but they're rare. More commonly, 
It feels like there's prayer and the course is run. It doesn't, I can't audibly or visually or physically sometimes see a way in which that's worked or changed. And the human tendency is to say, well, is that random then? Does God not really hear the prayers? Are they not answered? Am I doing something wrong in life? Is it me? Is there something about me that God doesn't want to answer my prayers? Is there something about the individual that's keeping God from healing that individual? This is where we run in our minds. Yes? No? I think it's where we run in our minds. And what God calls us to in faith through his word and through his declarations to us is something more. He has heard us. He's loved us with an everlasting love from the foundation of the earth. He's provided for your salvation and your life eternal. And he asks only that you trust him. Only that we trust him. And still it's the most difficult thing for us to give is our trust, particularly when we feel down on our luck. So we turn to our gospel story and it's such a well-known one. I picked it for that reason. I'm not trying to surprise you here with a text you don't know, a story that's unfamiliar. We turn to Jesus in a crowd, in a context in which he's been doing so much healing work. Mark chapter 5. Earlier in this chapter, he's healed the demon-possessed man. He's even raised a dead girl from death to life, if you can imagine. How glorious is that? And it says in verse 24b, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Here's that word, suffered. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Can you imagine? Some of you have had this story, not of the bleeding per se, but you've had an ailment that you have sought help for over and over and over again, or a fear or a condition of some kind that you've looked for assistance in solving, something you've tried to do again and again and again. You've spent resources, time, and nothing has changed. Twelve years later, the only thing that's changed is she's older and she's poorer. She's desperate now, really desperate now. She's isolated she lives in the red tent, for those of you who've read that book. She's separated from her family these 10 years. It's as if she's a leper in her own home, untouchable. 12 years. Now let's remember what happens with that kind of isolation. First of all, this is a touchy-feely sort of place. I, some of you may not appreciate it, and I'm happy to have you tell me, and I'm happy to change my behavior if it, it hurts or annoys you. I tend to be a touchy-feely kind of guy. I, I hug a lot of people in this church. I even kiss a few of you. I'm very happy to see you. I'm very demonstrative. I'm very physical in my sort of acceptance of people and my relationship to people. Some of you are that way, even more so. Some of you are a little less so. God made us all different. But human touch is an incredibly important thing. A baby can be fed, but if it's not held and touched and nurtured and talked to, it will not thrive. We each, at some level, desperately need that. 
We need someone who will look at us and say our names, who will acknowledge us. We need someone who can be in our presence and hear and be a comfort to us. Someone that we can actually be meaningful to. Someone we can serve. This is the social way in which we're created. This is the community we're called to. Grace and love. This poor woman was alienated from all of that. You can imagine her isolation, her depression, her frustration. It's amazing to me that she had the will to get up. It's amazing to me that she had the will to go into the crowd at all. But she said this. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Jesus didn't intentionally heal her. He didn't speak any words of healing to her prior to this. She simply had this incredible faith that if somehow she could just get close enough, if she could just touch him, touch his robe, something might happen for her. And that's the longing of your heart, and that's the longing of mine. We long to be in the presence of Jesus in such a way that we can get close enough to just touch his robe. If I could, I've heard it pastorally so many times. If I could just see him, if I could just ask him a question, if I could just talk to him, if he could just answer my question or heal me in some way, or this is, this is our heart. We, like this woman, long to, to have him physically present, to feel like we could approach him even humbly in a crowd and somehow reach him and find that moment of magic, grace, healing, peace. We long for that connection to the, the God we love. She comes up and she touches him, and indeed she feels the healing power come into her body. She is freed now, not from her bleeding, the scripture says. Isn't that interesting? She is freed from her bleeding. But it doesn't say she was freed from her bleeding. It says she was freed from her suffering. Her suffering was over. That's very different, isn't it? At once, Jesus realizes that something's happened. There's a power that has gone from him. And he turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That's a hard, hard passage in a way. Does this mean that if somehow I'm not healed, my faith wasn't sufficient to heal me? Should my own faith always be the basis of my healing? But wait a minute, isn't there a prayer in Scripture somewhere where someone says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Isn't there a give me there? Is there a moment of grace for any of us who can't quite muster the faith to get to healing? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
He knows our weaknesses, our infirmities. He knows that we're like dust, made from dust, and that we're like grass in the summer fire. It sprouts up green and grows quickly, turns brown and is burned. He knows. He knows of our suffering in our lives. And listen instead, not to this piece of guilt that says, if you don't have the faith somehow, that's the reason God isn't moving into your life. And listen to it this way. Daughter, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Does that hit you the way it hits me? There's a blessing there. There's a relationship there. She didn't know him. He didn't know her. They had never spoken. And what does he call her? She was unclean. She should never have touched him. He was a rabbi. This should have been infuriating. She did not belong in the crowd. She wasn't supposed to be there. And what does he say? There's no retribution. There's no recrimination. There's no judgment. There's no pronunciation. There's only, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Isn't that beautiful? Go in peace, shalom, and be free. I've set you free, now be free. Enjoy this life that you have, this life God has given you and I have renewed in you. Paul in Romans, this incredible, huge chapter in Romans, this amazing thing that he writes in Romans chapter 8 has an entire section devoted to present suffering and future glory. And I don't mean to reread, but let's, let's just do that anyway. Because we struggle with this sometimes most of all, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Our Calvinist friends love this passage. And there is some evidence in Scripture that things are set up in advance, that we're just running through a maze in a way that has already been determined for us. But Seventh-day Adventists understand and believe that the bulk of Scripture points to something greater. It's called choice. We have agency. We, God has shared power with us. We have freedom. We have choice. And so in this passage, how would we understand this word, predestined? Well, it is translated differently in different versions of Scripture. But the idea is that from the beginning... From the time that God created and before, he knew he had a purpose. He knew that there would be a fall, that there would be a redemption. He knew that his own son would be sent. He also knew that there would be those of us that would conform to the image of the son, brothers and sisters to Christ as it were those that he called and out of calling would justify them and out of justifying them would ultimately glorify them. It doesn't say 
in all of this that we're going to be healed or that life is going to go according to patterns of predictability as we've set it up to go or that all of our plans are going to come to be because we've made those plans and they're good in our eyes. None of this is the way life works, even though we want it to work that way, even though we expect it to work that way. And it's not the way God has said he works. It says we know by faith, by faith we have to embrace that whatever the circumstances, God is going to work for your good because you love him and because he loves you. And that in the end, his choice for you, whether you make it for yourself or not, his choice for you is that you find yourself among the redeemed, those called and those chosen. For you have been chosen from the foundation of the world. And having been chosen, that you accept that call, that you hear that, and he will justify you. He will sanctify you. And he will glorify you. That's the word of the Lord. So when you're comforting one another, when you're sharing a word of prayer, when you're with people in community, let's work together to hear the suffering, to enter it with our friends because we know we suffer too. To pray the prayer of faith and to exercise faith, believing that God's agency is real, that in many cases he has acted in ways we can see. He has healed. And at times it appears he does nothing. And let's choose to believe together because the scriptures promise it so that his desire from the foundation of the world for all of you is that you should be saved and not lost. That in Christ he will justify you, in Christ he will sanctify you, and in Christ he will redeem and glorify you. That's the gospel of peace. And to God's people, the word of the Lord. May every day our prayer be, Lord, great is thy faithfulness unto me. Amen.